You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. A busy week in Washington and for the White House on all fronts that includes movement on the budget and a visit to the Texas border yesterday by President Biden. Here to discuss what the president hoped to accomplish with that trip is Tolu Olorunipa, White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. Tolu, welcome back to First Look. It's great to be back with you. So before we talk about uh, about the border, let's talk about the budget real fast. The House pa- uh, succeeded in passing a CR with 320 votes. The Senate quickly followed suit, passing, passing one with 77 votes. Um, does the White House, here's my big question, does the White House have any faith that Congress will pass a full budget that can be adopted by April 30th to forestall that 1% across the board budget cut that will happen if a budget budget isn't approved by then? No, <laughs> there is <there's laughs> faith uh, in what Congress is going to be able to do over the next several week, weeks, because if you look at what they've done over the past several weeks, they've continued to miss deadlines, kick the can down the road, struggle to come to an agreement on anything long-term, and they've had to do multiple short-term continuing resolutions just to keep the lights on for a few more days to try to hammer out an agreement. But it doesn't seem like they're any closer to uh, navigating this thorny issue that they face in trying to corral a majority uh, of Republicans and Democrats or a bipartisan group to support anything on uh, how the government should be funded, because there's so many disagreements. So. There is not a lot of faith in Congress being able to come to an agreement. And the White House realizes that there are some members of Congress that would be completely happy with an across the board cut that could happen if they don't come to an agreement. And so when you have that, there's a lot of lack of faith that they will be able to get anything done in time. Yeah, this has shades of sequestration from the Obama years that um, didn't turn out so well. So Tulu, let's talk about the president's trip to the border yesterday. Donald Trump was also uh, near, near the region, although he was 300 miles away in Eagle Pass, Texas, with his own border visit. Here's the offer President Biden made to Trump yesterday in his visit to Brownsville, Texas. So here's what I would say to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with this issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. So, to Lou, that sounds imminently reasonable. Does the Biden administration actually think Trump will take them up on it? What's, what's he trying to accomplish with the visit, but with that particular offer? This is a way of flipping the script. Instead of remaining on defense on a vulnerable issue, President Biden and his allies believe that by trying to seem reasonable, trying to say that he's willing to make compromises, trying to work with Republicans, as the White House did in coming up with a bipartisan border security bill that ended up dying in Congress because Trump opposed it, that they will come out as the more reasonable actor on this very hot button issue. And so by going to the border the same day that Trump was going to the border, by putting forward policies that they think that they can present as bipartisan policies, they are hoping that the American people will give Biden credit for trying to solve the problem and give Trump you know, negative marks for not trying to solve the problem, but politicizing the problem. Now, it remains to be seen whether or not that will work out. 
Biden's right. poll numbers on immigration and on the border are very low. And so they have an uphill battle in trying to flip the script and change the narrative. But that is the approach that they're taking right now. Right. Well, I mean, from my perspective, uh, you got to try. Uh, let's look let, Let's look forward, because next week comes the, the State of the Union address. And, the, and this address, for any president, I mean, it's next Thursday, but for any president, the State of the Union very well may be the biggest audience the president will ever get uh, in any year. So what's his game plan going into, uh, going into the speech on March 7th? And any clues yet um, into what key points he'll emphasize? Yeah, a couple of key goals for this. One, they do want to appear presidential and focus on talking about the things that he's accomplished. Sometimes those things don't get enough uh, attention, according to White House officials. So they want to use this broad, broad audience that they have to lay out the vision of what they've done over the past three years and also what they would do in a second term and also try to appear presidential in the way that Donald Trump often does not appear uh, and try to remind Americans about what it means to have a quote unquote normal president. And so they are looking for the visuals. They're looking to make sure that this uh, appears on television as a grand presidential event and that Biden, who is 81 years old, appears strong and energetic and capable of rising to the moment when a lot of people are questioning his age. And now when it comes to the content of the speech, they are going to be talking not only about the accomplishments, the strong economy that uh, they were able to navigate through after taking over in the aftermath of the pandemic, but also laying out a vision for the next four years. We've heard from White House officials that they do want to talk about a plan and a policy orientated goal for the next uh, four years where they can talk about wanting to raise taxes on the wealthy, wanting to improve uh, childcare, and uh, wanting to make sure that people can afford the cost of living uh, even as they battle these issues like inflation. And so a lot of criticism has been levied at the president for not having a strong vision of what he would do in the next four years. This is his opportunity to lay out that vision, to talk about his second term agenda, and to make it clear that he is not running just as an anti-Trump person, but he's running with a strong vision for his own policy goals that he wants to achieve in the next mm -hmm. four years. And so we Let do expect to hear that. Yeah. L let me get you on something else related to the State of the Union, because on, on Wednesday night, Congressman Stephen Horsford of Nevada, who's the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, um, hosted a black media salon um, and made, made a point that I can't believe I didn't quite, that I missed this. But the State of the, U State of the Union address will be held on March 7th, which will be the 59th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. And um, Chair Horsford said he's hoping the president will make the connection between the, the quest for full democracy for African-Americans then with the preservation uh, uh, for preservation of democracy for all Americans today. Any chance that will happen? I would not be surprised if the president makes that clear connection. Um, he wants to frame his presidency as the presidency that saved democracy from Trump forces in the aftermath of January 6th, but also the presidency that can preserve democracy into the next term. Because if Trump is able to come back into office, uh, Biden and his allies believe that the American democracy is very much at stake. And so I would expect him to make that connection, not only to the heinous events of Bloody Sunday, but also to preserving democracy for all, to preserving uh, a diverse democracy that works for all people and framing his presidency as that kind of, uh, of initiative that 
represents America, that looks like America, that defends all versions uh, of America, including the versions that many Biden allies believe are, would be under threat in a Trump presidency. And so I would expect that message to come across loud and clear. This is an election year, State of the Union, and I expect there to be a lot of pointed election year messages at swing voters, at base voters, at voters who feel that they need more from Biden to show up and vote in November. They're going to get a lot of messages on Tuesday, on Thursday. Yeah, the Senate, yeah. Well, I'm going to switch gears in the in the few minutes we have left. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, the longest serving Senate leader of either party, but in the history of the Senate, announced that he would be stepping down from the leadership post. He's not leaving the Senate, but he's stepping down from the leadership post after the November elections. McConnell and the president served side by side when Biden was a senator, and they were they were the closers during the Obama administration. President Obama would send vice then Vice President Biden to the Hill to sit down with McConnell to hammer out all sorts of, of, of legislation. How would you describe McConnell's and Biden's relationship? They are contemporaries. They are both creatures of the Senate where they spent the majority of their careers and they've known each other for decades. And Biden has said that he privately, privately and publicly, he says that he personally likes uh, Mitch McConnell, even though they don't agree on very much. And so they are representatives of sort of a bygone era of having very different political opinions, but being able to sit down at the table and have lunch together. Uh, that era and the, and the time of Trump seems to be a bygone era. And, and it seems like it's been fading away um, over the past decade or so. And so the fact that not only is Mitch McConnell leaving the scene, but Trump is taking over the Republican Party, it is a sign of the way the times are changing. And Mitch McConnell is no longer welcome as, le as leader in his party. Yes, he's going out on his own accord, but he's also kind of being forced out by the Trump forces that are trying to take over the party fully. And this is another uh, sign that they are being successful in taking over the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And for someone like Biden, that's a, a warning sign that if he does not win, the Republican Party that would replace him is far different than the Republican Party that he came of age uh, voting against in the Senate uh, when he, he and Mitch McConnell were on different sides of political battles, but were able to sit down at the table at the end of those political battles. So one more question in about the less than a minute we have left. Hunter Biden sat down before um, that impeachment inquiry behind closed doors, seven hours. The transcripts have been released and there's not a whole lot of there there. Is the White House and the Biden campaign relieved that Hunter's deposition is now behind them? Or do they fear this will be an ongoing political headache? They are relieved that this has finally happened. There was no bombshell. The Republicans didn't come out and say, we got the smoking gun. And so they are relieved that this has happened. They're hoping that now that it's happened early in the year, that this will be all blown over by the time we get to election day. And so they are happy that this is behind them for now, but they are aware that this is, issue is not going to be completely behind them. It's going to continue as this impeachment inquiry plays out. They are at least thankful that this major interview has happened and there were no bombshells that emanated from it. Tolu Olarunipa. Pulitzer Prize winning White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. As always, thank you very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Time for the Opinions Roundtable. So let's go to the opinion side of The Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post editor-at-large Robert Kagan there on the top and Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan. Bob, Josh, welcome back to First Look.
Great to be back. Good to see you. Um, I want to start this conversation by talking about the, the McConnell legacy. Um, <laughs> he announces his departure from, uh, from the leadership. It'll be in, in November. Um, Bob, you go first. What legacy does he leave from your perspective? His legacy is that he presided over the transformation of the Republican Party into an authoritarian party led by uh, an authoritarian leader named Donald Trump. Um, that is his legacy. You can say that he was defeated by those forces, but I would say he played a critical role in allowing those forces to take over. And never more, and this is what I think he should go down in history for, uh, for voting against impeachment the second time uh, in response to the January 6th events. If, if Mitch McConnell and a few other what we call normie Republican senators uh, like Cornyn and others had voted uh, to impeach Trump when they should have, he would not be able to run for president right now. We would not be having the mess that we're in. And Mitch McConnell is personally responsible uh, for putting us in this crisis and potentially leading this country uh, to, democ to, uh, to the end of democracy. And so, yes, that is Mitch McConnell's legacy as far as I'm concerned. Josh? Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, people saying about uh, Mitch McConnell was such a great deal maker and he reached across the aisle. I'm old enough to remember when he uh, broadened the tactics of obstructionism to stop Merrick Garland from getting a hearing uh, to be in the Supreme Court. And I think watching him over the years, I think what he did was really actually erode some of the norms around policymaking. And his mastery of the Senate was used to actually stop more than it was used to advance. And ironically for him, I guess, the MAGA Trump crowd, especially in the House, uh, took those cues and then just ran with them. And what we're seeing in the House and amongst the Trump Republicans is just you know, a total obstructionism, especially when it comes to national security aid. And I think that's uh, uh, Mitch McConnell uh, planted the seed for that in a lot of ways. And, you know, as for what happens now, I think it depends on who comes next. You know, there are three Johns uh, running to succeed him. Two of them voted for the Ukraine aid, John Thune and John Cornyn. One of them voted against it. That's John Barrasso. Uh, so in the sense that Mitch McConnell was the guy who tried to manage between the uh, establishment Republicans and the Trump Republicans, uh, I think his departure shows that that's no longer a thing that can really be done. Um, with his departure um, in November, will, will Trump's control of congressional Republicans be complete, considering he talks to Speaker Johnson on a regular basis, um, maybe even every day, and he had no relationship at all with Mitch McConnell, Josh? Uh, yeah, no, I think in the House it's well complete, and I think that uh, again, you don't, you don't need the majority necessarily to 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 thwart action, and it's much easier in Congress. It always has been uh, to destroy things than to build them. And in the sense that Trump is very good at destroying things, and he has enough allies in the House to do that, and soon in the Senate probably. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a that's a watershed moment in terms of how Congress runs or doesn't run in this case. So again, it's sort of like you could praise deal making all you want, but if Trump's against the deal, then there, there isn't any Republican in Washington that's going to be able to buck that. And I think that's what uh, the failure of this national security funding proves and um, McConnell's departure cements. Uh, let's talk about Trump and and, and the Supreme Court, Bob, because the. the the court announced it would review Trump's claim of immunity from prosecution in the case involving his efforts to uh, overturn the free and fair election of 2020. 
um, arguments being set um, the week of April 22nd. Assuming the high court smacks back Trump's immunity claim, how concerned are you that Judge Chutkin could be presiding over a trial smack in the middle of a presidential election? I mean, that's what that's what it seems like we're heading toward. And that is what the Supreme Court has quite deliberately uh, created this situation. They could have acted in any number of ways that would have expedited uh, uh, these decisions so that so that you wouldn't have a trial uh, occurring in the last weeks of the election. But th I think the court, uh, on the one hand, is trying to punt this issue and not have to get in the middle of it. And on the other, I think, is driven by the fact that, uh, let's face it, there are MAGA Republicans on the court. You know, Clarence Thomas is a MAGA Republican. Um, his wife engaged in an effort uh, to overturn the last election. And so, you know, I, I think we need to uh, set aside whatever reverence we may have for the court and understand it's, it's a political court in many ways, political in the sense that um, the justices themselves are political, but also political in the way it wants to position, it's the way Roberts wants to position the court in the middle of this crisis. The court has an obligation uh, to deal with this crisis, which they're basically punting. You know, Josh, I was scribbling this note because uh, Bob reminds me, it's not, should Thomas recuse himself? I mean, we know he, he's not going to, but should Chief Justice Roberts force him to recuse himself? How is it possible that a Supreme Court justice whose wife is intimately and intricately, intricately involved in what happened in 2020, how can he sit and hear this case? Right. I mean, to be clear, I don't think that all public officials need to be held responsible for the actions of their family members. I certainly hope my family members aren't held responsible for my words and actions. Uh, but the, fa the fact is that this is a extremely egregious example, an extremely egregious case with extremely damning facts. And, you know, Jenny Thomas was not only involved in the last uh, attempt to overthrow the election, she's involved still. She's still doing it. And she's right in the center of all of the the 2024 stuff on the MAGA side as well. So, yeah, that's a clear conflict of interest, as uh, I could imagine, really. Uh, but no, I don't see any uh, uh, enforcement mechanism. And, you know, all of the other instances of alleged corruption in the court recently have shown that they really are not able to police themselves. So I don't think there's any going to be any movement on that. You know, Bob, you wrote a couple of powerful pieces late last year about the path towards um, dictatorship. Uh, if, you know, uh, with Donald Trump at the helm, are we even closer now to that becoming a, a, a real possibility than when you wrote those pieces about six months or so ago? <clears throat> I mean, yes, we're, we're further down the road there. You know, what I what I said in the in that in those essays was that, you know, there have been various off ramp possibilities where we could, uh, you know, avoid uh, having a potential dictator in power, by the way, someone who doesn't seem to mind the word dictator to describe himself. Um, but but th those off-ramps have been passed. Uh, we've, we had another off-ramp in the hope that perhaps something would happen in the Republican primary. That's about to pass. Uh, and so we're now left with the general election as the only thing that can possibly save us from uh, a very reasonable possibility that we will have someone in power who has dictatorial tendencies and, and, and the ability to use them, uh, especially as we've been talking about, because he will, uh, in all likelihood, control uh, the, you know, at least the party, the Republican Party in both houses, but potentially both houses, in fact. 
Um, and so there's, there's almost nothing to stand in his way. And that's the, that's the situation that we're in right now. Yeah, both houses, but, but also, I can't remember if it was, I think it was you, Bob, both houses, but also the Supreme Court. <laughs> it's like the three branches of government in the hands of one person. Let's talk about, about Ukraine um, and the, the, the speech, I think it was yesterday, that Russian President Vladimir Putin gave in Russia. And in that speech, he threatened to use nuclear weapons against NATO countries if they send forces to help Ukraine. Now, two questions, Josh. Uh, I want, would love to get both of your perspectives, but Josh, I'm going to come to you first. Two questions. Did French President Macron step in it by making such a, suggest such a suggestion? Because he's the one who said, hey, everything should be on the table, including sending troops to Kiev. And how seriously should we take Putin's threat? Right. I think they're two related uh, questions and two related answers, because I think what we fail to realize often in Washington is that uh, we're not just fighting against Putin's military uh, and its aggressive invasion of Ukraine. It's a hybrid war, and especially an information war, and Putin is playing that war skillfully and ruthlessly. And in this case, uh, his nuclear saber rattling is part of that. And uh, as we watch on our TV screens, the funeral today of Alexei Navalny, uh, that's also part of it. External aggression and internal repression in dictatorships go hand in hand. And so anytime you sort of make a gaffe like that, and I think that's what Macron did, he didn't, he's not trying to send French troops to Ukraine. I don't really think France is going to do that. Uh, but he gaffed and, and uttered it and played into Putin's hands in the information war. It's an unforced error on the part of the West, but it's really just one small example in an overall, what I think is a failure to realize that, you know, we, the, the, the narrative is changing. Uh, a lot of that has to do with what we've been talking about, you know, support for Ukraine is eroding on the MAGA right, uh, and around America, frankly, because of the proliferation of prop Putin propaganda, disinformation, some of it coming out of the former president's mouth, some of it coming out of Tucker Carlson's Twitter feed. And uh, that's a that has a real effect on on our American support for Ukraine. So yeah, I would like to see less European gaffes and more forceful pushbacks against uh, Putin's propaganda. But no, I don't think he's going to nuke us. But the brinksmanship is part of his attempt to manipulate us. And to be clear, Macron is by himself. <laughs> in, in, in yeah, it's that not a real thing. In, in that and, declaration, uh, Bob. Well, look, you know. Uh, it, Putin's the utility of nuclear weapons for Putin is 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 simply as a threat. Um, you know there is no useful way he can deploy nuclear weapons in this conflict in a way that helps him win the war. Uh, if he wants to blow up the world and hope that he's going to control the water in a post-apocalyptic Mad Max world, that that may be his plan, but I doubt it. Uh, if you go and look, uh, you know Bill Burns had an article in Foreign Affairs and he made a comment which I think wasn't uh, noticed enough, which is that. He thought there was a very little probability that Putin would use nuclear weapons, and that's correct. So Putin has been effectively using the threat. And I have to say, I do uh, hold the Biden administration somewhat responsible for the fact that Putin believes his threats work. You know, the Biden administration has made a big thing about how carefully it's managed uh, the escalation ladder. Um, it, it makes it, they've made it clear on numerous leaks to the press that they very much have the nuclear issue on their mind. And so in a way, they've sort of invited Putin to make these kinds of threats as a way of manipulating uh, Western opinion and, and Western foreign policy and strategic decisions. Um, I think we need to be clear that we need to call Putin's bluff immediately. Otherwise, you know, 
he can use this nuclear threat in a lot of different ways on a lot of different issues if we look like it works, if we, look, if we make him see that it works. Josh, last week you wrote uh, in a column in the Post, quote, Ukrainians are not just fighting for their immediate survival, they are also struggling to establish their long-term security. Do you believe the West will meet their needs eventually? Well, I mean, in the long run, we're all dead. So eventually, that's a really heavy word to use here right. because the Ukrainians don't have eventually. They're losing now. Like The reason Putin doesn't need to use a nuke is because he's winning now because the Ukrainians don't have any bullets or uh, missiles for their anti- Air, for their air defense systems. And that's that's on us. That's because we promised them and then didn't deliver them through our own dysfunction. So yeah, eventually really does them no good. That's why they're looking for the assurances now. And I was in Munich at the Munich Security Conference where I saw a lot of panicked Europeans and Ukrainians and uh, asking me for reassurance that the United States was going to do the right thing. I refuse to promise anything because I'm not sure that that's going to happen. And uh, they have a right to be panicked. And especially if Trump wins, they, the Ukrainians will be on their own. So they have got a limited amount of time to get the West to give them whatever commitments they can and hopefully whatever ammunition they can muster. And it's not looking good, Jonathan. I mean, you have to just be honest about this. You know, the, the battle lines are, 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 are collapsing uh, and the Ukrainians are losing hope. So, yeah, no, we still have a chance to pull this thing together, uh, but the, we don't have eventually. We've got weeks or months at the most. And you know, Bob, in listening to Josh, uh, the bigger question comes to mind. You know, Josh at the Munich Security, Munich Security Conference panicked Europeans. And I'm just wondering, how bad is this, this impasse over the Ukraine funding bill for American credibility around the world. I mean, is this something the United States cannot come back from? Will we no longer be seen as the indispensable nation? Well, we're certainly we're certainly at that moment and, you know, can we come back from it? I, you know, Josh is right, history is long. We we came back from being isolationists in the 1930s. Of course, it required a world war in order to to come back and I and I hope that's not where uh, this is heading now. But look, we this is a hinge moment in history. Uh, this is a critical moment. It will matter uh, for the future whether the United States provides this support or not. And I have to say, you know, if, if, you, if you look back at the 1930s and, and early 40s analogy, you know, by this stage, Franklin Roosevelt would have given X number, uh, any number of fireside addresses, major national speeches, um, that is something that's really been missing uh, from the Biden administration. Uh, President Biden has yet to give a full-throated uh, speech in defense of, uh, of Ukraine for a national audience. And I'll be very interested to see whether he does that in the State of the Union. Mm. Because if the president is not willing to lay himself down on the line in a public way on this, I don't know how we can expect the American people necessarily to come to the right decision. You know, Trump and his supporters have owned the field to some extent on the Ukraine debate. Uh, I don't think Biden has been fighting it nearly as much as he needs to. Mm, Josh. Yeah, no, I think Bob's criticisms have merit. You know, there is no doubt that the White House's communication strategy has been bad. Their messaging strategy has been absent. Uh, they, When I talked to White House officials about the Ukraine bill, until recently, they always said the same thing. Oh, McConnell will handle it. Don't worry, McConnell will handle it. That turned out not to be the case. So they underestimated the, the discontent around the United States about this. And that's a problem. But 
to be honest, you know, trying to pin this thing on Biden is a little bizarre because, you know, he's the one trying to get the Ukrainians the bullets and the money that they need to survive. And he's he's done a lot for Ukraine, a 50-nation coalition that is going to collapse if they don't pass this bill. So, yeah, I have criticisms with his argument. But in the end, you know, the either the American people and the polls show, by the way, 65 percent still support Ukraine. So it's really a minority of people that are stopping America from filling, fulfilling its role. Uh, in the world, the role that we've had since World War II. And so I think that in the end, you know, they're going to have to find a way to get them this money through the summer. And then America, the American people will have a chance to decide. They'll go to the polls and they'll have a clear choice between a president who's imperfect but supports freedom and democracy and human rights around the world imperfectly or a, a former president who doesn't care about any of that stuff. And, you know, I like to say in democracies, uh, the people get the government that they, that they deserve. Whew. Uh, <laughs> Bob, real, real bad. <laughs> and I'm laughing. I'm laughing, Josh, because I don't want to burst out crying. Yeah, yeah, that's how scared. I deal with it too. I'm, yeah. I'm kind of scared about the, you know, what kind All of government people are going to give us in November. Although I am hopeful. Um, real, real fast, Bob. Um, Pre President Biden is going to be hosting the NATO summit in Washington. Uh, th this July, uh, do you think he should use that occasion to pressure NATO or make the case to NATO that Ukraine should be um, granted membership? You know, when we are still unwilling even to give Ukraine all the weapons that they need to get uh, to, to declare that they are part of NATO in this situation, NATO, they should be brought into NATO eventually. Uh, but you need to take seriously what being in NATO means. NATO right. means that uh, because Ukraine, if it was in NATO, it would be under attack by Russia, which means that we would then be uh, through the NATO treaty at war with Russia. Um, Article five. You know, I, I, I personally am ready to bring NATO, Ukraine into NATO and, and, and take that risk, but I bet a lot of people aren't, and I'm, and people who say bring uh, Ukraine into NATO need to understand exactly what that means in the present context. Right, uh, and that's why I was saying Article 5, which is an attack on one, is an attack on all. Robert Kagan, Josh Rogan, as always, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.